Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to this Sandbox Story, an interview with Dr. Jennifer Stewart. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're an optometrist in Connecticut. Yeah. Correct. correct. I'm in Connecticut. I heard this story about you getting motivated to get into optometry by a local eye doctor. Is that right? Correct. Actually, in New York, my neighbor growing up in the Hudson Valley was an optometrist. Okay. So you get motivated to go to optometry school. Where'd you go? I went to New England College of Optometry. Okay. All right. So you're a Northeasterner. Yes. All in all. So you have this interesting athletic background. You've been a runner and a triathlete. Um, in triathlons, do you have a strong or weak part of your game? Well, you would think being a college division one runner, that running would be my strong part, but I was a sprinter and a jumper. So uh, I'm not really a long distance person. So cycling actually turned out to be my strength in triathlons. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Had you cycled before you did triathlons? No. <laughs> I mean, growing up, learning how to ride a bike, that was the extent of my cycling ability, but I had never really learned to shift gears. I uh, didn't know how to change a tire. So I learned all of this uh, when I started doing triathlons. Isn't that interesting? To become an over-the-road bicyclist, you do have to learn how to change a tire. Yes. Yes, you should. You should. <laughs> you should learn how to change a tire. Did you learn it on a YouTube video or did you actually have a mentor that helped you? Uh, well, all the above. Um, I tried learning on YouTube. I luckily had a great local bike shop and friends who can change one. And then my husband is an elite triathlete. So he's tried to help me multiple times. I'm still not great at it, but I can do it. <laughs> That's awesome. So you, one of your endeavors that you've tried more recently is Olympic weightlifting. That doesn't mean you're going to the Olympics, but what is Olympic weightlifting? <laughs> so I spent my 20s as an endurance athlete. I competed in sprint triathlons, half Ironmans, open water swim races. I did a marathon, multiple trail races, and also did a, a time trial cycling race. So uh, but I've changed my focus to actually Olympic weightlifting, which is focused on two lifts, the snatch and the clean and jerk. So I started this year, um, just something I was looking, you know, looking for my next sport. I was a power lifter in high school. So um, I, was, I competed in power lifting when I was in high school and continued lifting in college. But, you know, always, always learning, always adapting, you know, always trying to learn something new and, and become excited about something else. Did you get inspired to weightlift because somebody that you knew was a weightlifter or was it because you, you know, watched something on the Olympics? What, what motivated you to that? It, of course it's fitness. But. It's fitness. So, you know, I've always, I've continued to lift even through doing triathlons and I lifted a lot over the winter, but I actually had a patient last summer who um, we were setting up cataract surgery and she's in her sixties. And she said, you know, Dr. Stewart, um, you know, I can't do surgery at this time because I have a meet coming up. And I said, oh, you know, what kind of meet? And she said, she's actually a power lifter. She said, I'm a power lifter. And I said, oh, my gosh. And she was telling me about how she started doing it just a few years ago. And 
and how excited she was and how she was the oldest person doing it, but how it's changed her life. And, you know, I just, it kind of stuck with me for a while. And I, it, I filed away in the back of my mind and over the winter, it just kept coming back to me. And it took me until March to figure out that I actually wanted to do this and then COVID hit. But, uh, you know, I've been working with a coach since March and really since okay. June. And she actually came back in about two months ago and I, I shared my story with her. And I said, I bet you don't even remember telling me you're doing this, but a year ago you inspired me. So she's hoping to come to one of my meets in the future. It's funny because when you talk about this weightlifter who's being scheduled for cataract surgery, we tell these patients they can't lift anything yeah. and uh, she wants to do a full on power. Yes. <laughs> My father-in-law has weightlifted his entire life and I know it's been really great for his health. And uh, one of my friends who's a, a preventive cardiologist has suggested that even basic amounts of weightlifting are, are really good for you know the muscle build that you get, which is really your your burning part, your factory, your energy burning part of your body. And, and it's got to make you exhausted, but uh, not only fit, but but it's good for your long-term health, isn't it? It's so great, especially as a woman, you know, building bone density and just continuing to stay active. And it's fun. It's mentally challenging. It's physically challenging. So it's just a great way to to just stretch myself and to do something different. I, I just love the challenge. I, I'm always looking for a new challenge, and this is definitely one of them. <laughs> So you you have this practice that you're a partner in, and it's a you know really successful practice. I want to focus on you having built up a separate sports and performance vision clinic. Um, first of all, uh, what do you do for your patients there? So we started Performance 2020 in 2016. Um, it's been kind of a dream of mine for the whole time I was in optometry school and, and practicing, you know, being a lifelong athlete, I wanted to find a way to combine my love of sports with optometry. And you know, I knew I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, uh, you know, still, you know, you never know, but it could be, yeah. it could be, you know, I've got some time, but you know, finding a way to, to look forward to going to work and to combine two things that I love. Um, so performance 2020 is a separate sports and train sports and performance vision training center from my practice where we work with athletes to improve hand-eye coordination, anticipation, decision-making, focus, attention. Um, and we work with them to use both a combination of traditional vision therapy tools and the latest in sports vision technology that's out there. And it's a referral-only clinic. This isn't a primary care clinic. No, we don't do eye exams. I don't have a lane. There's no optical, no slit lamp, no nothing. Um, it's, it's truly you know, a referral-based practice, similar to a vision therapy practice, no insurance. Um, so it, it's, it's in a sports facility. So we're next to a strength and conditioning group across the hallway from a large physical therapy group and next to a large chiropractor group. So, you know, it doesn't feel optometry. It doesn't feel vision. It feels very sports and performance-based, which is exactly what we intended. Are there cross referrals then between the strength and PT groups and your vision performance group? It's taken a lot of time, but yes. So, you know, I think that's a great way for us to, to get referrals and it just takes time. You know, when we opened up, no one had ever heard of sports vision, you know, and, and most people expected me to be doing eye exams in there and they didn't really know what to expect. So I spend a lot of time, education, outreach, hosting seminars, hosting um, you know, demos and, and really working on getting the word out about what we do, how can we help, and just how can we improve athletes' performance, but how can I make the other other people in my group or, you know, on our floor better? 
Um, you know, it's a collaborative approach. We don't work in a vacuum, but if I can make an athlete better, then I'm going to help the strength coach. I'm going to help the physical therapist. I'm going to help that chiropractor and, and we can all work together. So it took time. You know, it's nothing that happened overnight and I'm persistent. I'm patient. I'm diligent. I spend a lot of time cold emailing people and calling and um, it just took time to get the, the word out. But once once people understand what we do and how it helps, um, people were very receptive of the training. Well, I mean, I, in the 1980s, 1990 time, was enamored of the sports vision clinic training that we were given as interns at the Illinois College of Optometry. And I find it interesting some 30 years later <laughs> that there isn't a lot of sports vision practice in optometry. Why might that be? I think there's a lot of disconnect between the interest to do it and then the practical way of how to do it. So, you know, I get so many inquiries from optometrists and other, not just optometrists, but other people who are interested in the field, but intimidated by starting. And I think I, I was in the same boat. I kept looking online for this magic blueprint of, okay, it's got to be out there. How do I do this? You know, how do I start? What equipment do I get? How do I do the marketing? And it just didn't exist. So my husband and I started Performance 2020 together and we just said, we're just going to take a chance. And we're, we're all in. He left his job in the financial sector to do it. So we were all in, but we figured it out how to do it. We made a lot of mistakes along the way, but um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of interest in doing it, but there's the the lack of understanding of how to do it. And I work with a lot of optometrists and other professionals, and, and I tell them there's no right way to do it. And the way I do it looks very different from other ways that other people have done it. But just being passionate about it and trying. And there's no wrong way to do it, but you know the, the scariest step is the first one. And if somebody wanted to know about how to do it, could they contact you at Performance 2020 and get some insights from you? Absolutely. You know, our website, there's a great way to reach us. Also, you know, the International Sports Vision Association is a wonderful resource. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm on the advisory board, but we have just a great network of optometrists and other professionals, not even in the eye care world. We're looking to build awareness and education for all professionals to understand how this training could benefit their athletes how we can work together to do it. We have a great conference coming up in February um, that's going to be chock full of information for everyone from you know, beginners to okay. professional advanced, you know, all the techniques in, in between. So it's great to get out there and meet other people who are doing it and network. Um, you know, I, the meeting in February this past year, it was just great to be around so many people who do the same thing. So you know, finding a group that does it and, and just networking and learning, that's the best way to do it. I was uh, just given the opportunity for CE to listen to one of neurooptometry's uh, best, Dr. Len Messner from ICO, talk about chronic, uh, chronic, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. And uh, it's a fascinating topic. And obviously with young contact sport athletes, it's something to pay attention to. Is there any part of your sports vision practice that's attendant to the patients that may have those issues? So some people do. We didn't focus on the concussion part as, you know, that actually a lot of the groups that are in our, our facility focus on that. So um, we did a lot of work post-concussion. So when they were um, cleared to return to play, I would work with either the chiropractors or the physical therapists to work on things that might be needed after that. So 
other, you know, there are some doctors. Uh, Deanne Fitzgerald is just an unbelievably passionate person in the field of sports vision and concussion, um, who really are, are taking the primary role in concussion. Um, I took kind of the secondary role more on the performance side or enhancing as they would return to play. Got it. All right, let's go back in time. Oh, <laughs> so if I understand your first job was at a resort yeah. and at that resort, you took a lot out of the importance of guest experience. And I'd like to know more about that. So my first job, my first paying job or real job uh, was at Mohonk Mountain House in New Paltz, New York, which is in my hometown in the Hudson Valley. It's a beautiful Victorian resort. You know, think of a combination of dirty dancing and the shining. And uh, that was my summer job. And I worked in the gift shop from the time I was in college, uh, freshman year of college through right before I went to optometry school. And you know, I think just what it was ingrained in me from working there was a focus on the guest experience. And they just did such a great job instilling the importance that every person in that whole hotel, whether you were you know, cleaning the floors or you were the CEO, everyone had a responsibility to put the guests first and the lessons I learned you know when I was 18 years old have stuck with me through my career and you know I you know guest versus patient um, to me it's the same and every person in my practice you know we instill that that your first role is is to the patient and to make their experience an unbelievable one and however we do that so when I worked at Mohonk you know things I remember are no matter where you're going if a guest asks you a question you stop and you answer that question or you bring them to, you know, somebody who can answer if you don't know. But, um, you know, we were empowered to walk them where they needed to go. There was no pointing, you know, oh, the bathroom's over there. Um, no, you know, I'm, I'm actually walking that way. Can I escort you? Um, we can walk that way together. Um, but it's things like that. You know, that was 22 years ago, and, and it stuck with me today. Um, and, and just the way that they empowered us to learn about the history of the resort and spend time there on our days off and spend time when we weren't working to build this family to make you feel like you're you're part of a family working somewhere. Um, you know, I, I hope that I instill that in my staff. You know, I spend more time with my staff than I do at home. So I bring those lessons to the practice even this day. Well, let's go there. I mean, you obviously must take efforts to optimize the patient experience in the clinic. Um, you are working with your staff. And I think a lot of ECPs do provide in-house training and guidance, but it's hard to enforce when you're in the dark room and back seeing patients and getting stories from other staffers of somebody who might not meet your standard or worse from a patient. What can you teach us about how to train it and instill it that can actually help it stick? Yeah, I think it starts from from me or it starts from the doctor. And, you know, if I walk in there and I'm in a bad mood and, you know, we all have personal things that go in our life, but you know, I, I, I put myself at, on a, a pedestal and say, if I walk in and I'm in a bad mood and I go into the exam room not really feeling it, I can't expect that my staff are going to have you know this this beaming smile all day. So you know what we what we talk about a lot is you know everything leaves you leave everything at the door and you walk in there and the patients don't care what else is going on. And especially this year, I think it's even more important. We've all got a lot in our mind. We're stressed, you know, the world is stressed, but you know, I walk in and say, how can I have a good day today? And I, I really feel truly blessed with what I do. I come home and I say, you know, my cheeks hurt from laughing and smiling all day. And that's the, that's the attitude I try and bring to my staff. And 
I try and remember every time I walk in that exam room, this is the first time this patient is having this experience this year. It might be the first time they've ever had an eye exam. And this might be the 18th time that I've walked in there and talked about, uh, you know, myopia or glaucoma or, you know, done what I've, you know, done 18 times in a row. But for this patient, that's the first time. And I have to remember that when I walk in. And we empower the staff to do that too. It might be the 20th time you've checked somebody's eye pressure today or done an auto refraction, but for the patient, they don't remember last year. So in essence, it's their first time. So we have to have that experience every single time and be consistent. But I think it starts with me and, you know, no one's perfect. I'm guilty of walking in some days and going, okay, whew, look at that schedule and, you know, those patients. And I go, no, today's going to be a good day. I'm going to walk in there. And the other thing I try and do is, is, is uh, I do this anyway, is, you know, compliment each patient on something, you know, it's just, my way of walking in and smiling and saying, you know, I love your bag. I love your purse. Um, you know, I like that shirt. And I think it sets a tone for patients and, it, you know, especially a new patient with masks on, it's really hard to make a connection. So, you know, I, I just try to walk in and set the tone that this is going to be a positive experience. And, and if you do that every single day and every single patient, the day will fly and you're going to just see this huge patient satisfaction. That's a great point. Now let's take that another level. One of the challenges with staff management, and, and I'm my biggest regret about being in clinic when I was busy wasn't that I could um, couldn't turn it on for the patient, but that I couldn't turn it on for the staff. That when you get kind of back in the back rooms, there were times where I still to this day regret not being the right giving the right tone or being the right leader for the people. I mean, I was leading, but I had high expectations and I would um, try to coach and my tone would change and it would be different than I had with the patients. It wasn't hard to get ready for the patient. And, and I think that that can pervade inside of a clinic with staff. So like you said, you're not perfect every day. How do you manage that when you want to coach people and sometimes you have to take more of a business approach and that can start to cause sort of issues between the people in the clinic as opposed to with the patients? Right. I think, you know, by nature, I'm kind of an upbeat person. So, you know, I mean, everyone gets a little frustrated, but in general, I walk in and, and I try and always stay in a good mood. And if I need a break and I need to just go back in my office and like take a second, I do. But I really try hard to, to keep that attitude. And, you know, I'm a bit silly. I'm a I'm not a ser I'm a serious person, but I usually am. Uh, I laugh a lot. So, you know, I try and go out there and have fun with my staff and you know, they know that I have an open door policy and I really mean that. I, you know, I'm happy to talk to them after work about issues. So I think they know that I go in there and try and make the day as fun as possible. We work really hard. Um, we are really busy and we've grown significantly in the time that I've been there. But, you know, I try and keep them focused on what we're doing. And sometimes you do need to, to take a, a step back and say, you know, what's going on in your life? You know, I noticed that you, you seem a little frustrated, you know, is there something in the office? And and kind of, it's always a constant reminder, you know, everyone forgets that we do need to, to leave our personal stuff aside. And, you know, I said, just, let's, let's make it happen and let's get through the day and let's do it with a smile on our face. And, you know, sometimes like Monday, last Monday, I stopped early, I was five minutes early and I picked up coffee for everybody. And just that small, you know, I put a little note on it, happy Monday, Dr. Stewart. And, you know, just a little thing like that, everyone's like, oh, wow, thank you. You know, it costs nothing, but it starts that Monday off well. And, 
you know, we have a great staff. We've grown. We just actually hired three more people in the last month. So we've got a huge change in dynamic. Um, so you know, new people can kind of shift that. But you know, stepping in also when there when there starts to be some issues, you know, getting in there really quickly and, and nipping it in the bud and stopping that toxic toxic trend that can happen if somebody is unhappy, it pulls the whole group down and, um, you know, kind of stepping in there and, and stopping it right away before it pervades through the whole staff. And the staff people that are having observations of somebody who's having a tough time seeing the leader go in and intervene sounds like a hard word, but yeah. create a connection. They appreciate it. They see that. And they know, you know, I say sometimes I go in and go, well, you know, Oh, today's going to be a tough day. And, you know, I'm human and I don't walk in there and pretend I'm not human and that nothing bothers me. But, you know, I, I try and lighten the load and, and make it just, you know, we look, there's always going to be a patient that can bring it down. And I said, you know, but look at the other patients that left happy and let's read the reviews that we get. I read every single patient review that comes through. I print them out. I highlight them and I show everybody. So, you know, anytime that one unhappy patient can, can make everybody feel frustrated and down. I said, but look at all these reviews. Look at these, look at what people have said about you. And it's not about me. It's about you. And it's about this person, what you did to go above and beyond to make their experience great. That's what we focus on. Not, not the, you know, not feeling down about anything. Well, uh, speaking of the customer experience uh, training you've had, I understand you're a Disney fanatic. I am. And <laughs> as we're talking about uh, things that happen in front of patients, I think of Disney's phrase of on stage and how even things that are backstage are still on stage if the guests, our patients, have access to them. That might be where our staff leaves their coffee cups on a counter that they walk by. So you say you re you've read pretty much every Disney uh, management book. And uh, I guess I'd be curious if you influence your business styles with Disney management pearls, what would you share with us? I, you know, I think it's just that, that, you know, you are always on stage and that's how I feel when I walk in. Look, I, I'm an extrovert by nature, so it's really not hard for me to walk into an exam room. I joke I could have a conversation with a wall, um, but for some people that's, that's more of a challenge and they have to kind of be in their role. And, you know, for me, it's quite easy, but I have to remember it might not be that easy. And we do talk about that. You know, you're on stage the minute you punch in and there's a patient in that office, you are on stage and everything you're doing, they're watching, you know, and, and especially we don't have anyone in the waiting room right now, but um, we've all been in doctor's offices where you hear, you know, people talking about another patient or you hear them talking about another staff member and, um, you know, it's very uncomfortable. So, you know, we have a large office now. Um, we were in a smaller space when I first started and it was easier for me and harder for the staff because I could hear everything. I heard everything in the optical. I could hear everything at the front desk. So, you know, it was very easy to jump in and say, you know, I noticed, you know, I overheard this. Let's make sure it doesn't happen again. So, you know, it's now I'm not, we have a large office, so I can't hear everything, but I try and be visible and, and be out and about and not be sitting in my office. Um, but, you know, I think really it all comes down again to the, the patient experience or, you know, in Disney, the guest experience. I love going and, and, you know, there's never, you never see garbage. You never see anyone picking up garbage. You, you know, everyone's happy. Everyone's trying to help you. And that's what I try and instill in our staff. You know, there's no, it's not my job or I don't know how to do that. It's, you know, how can I figure it out and how can I find you the right person to get that answer? And again, it starts from the top. You know, I'm, I'm the first one to answer the phone if, if it's busy. 
Um, it's sometimes I go, oh, well, gosh, I don't know how to answer that. But you know, I think if I sat there and let the phone ring and, and said it's not my job, that's not the type of leadership that instills you know people to want to act. And I am the first one to pick up the garbage. I vacuum. You know, I can do everything. And you know, I really like to show that I I'm part of the team. Um, so I, I hope that they feel the same. And you know, we say everyone in our office is cross-trained to do everything. And we expect people to jump in and help because it's all about getting getting the patients what they need, whoever can do that. I find myself going to Disney now, grading how well the Disney people do at what they're supposed to do. Uh, my daughter was a college program intern at Disney, got taught everything from the proper finger pointing with multiple fingers to you know every little detail. And um, there are times even where they, as a 75,000 plus employer, a uh, few less now that they've done some reductions, um, don't always carry through on their own. And the point is that it's an ongoing, never ending process to optimize the relationship that you have with your team so they have the right relationship with their uh, their guests, their patients. Let's go back to the practice. So you've optimized patient workflow systems, and you and I have never talked about this. Can you give me a walkthrough of a primary care patient experience at your clinic? What is it like from the moment I park in the parking lot till the moment I get the chance to check out? Well, it's different now, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right. obviously we're doing the, you know, the COVID procedure. So, um, you know, we assuming we, all of that, assuming, assuming all of that. So, you know, we've, we've really worked hard to make patients, the patient experience very efficient. And I'm, I'm a stickler for running on time. And that I think is just a huge part of, of for me, the patient experience. So, you know, we're very, very detailed on how we schedule. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a stickler for making sure patients are scheduled before they even walk in the office correctly and um but one of the greatest we just had a news about a month ago in the front desk and she comes from a dental practice and the second day she came back and knocked on my door and she said can i talk to you for a second you know we all go oh gosh you know oh what is she and she said i just i've never been in a, a business that runs on time and i said what and she said, you know, in the dental office I worked at, it wasn't uncommon that people waited two hours. And I said, oh, my gosh. And I said, there is, you know, I am on, I'm listening where every patient is. I'm listening. I've got my watch. You know, I'm a stickler for time. So, you know, we try and get the patient in the minute they walk in, especially now, you know, we don't want them sitting. So they check in and we've changed a little bit now that we have more front desk people, but we utilize scribes. So the scribe usually takes the patient as soon as they're checked in starts pre-testing them and brings them back into the exam room. They do all of the, the kind of the pre-work, checking visual acuity, history, um, everything, getting the foropter set. They know where I like my pen. They know how I want the sheet of paper. They know what line I want on the chart. They know wh how I want the foropter set up so that when I walk in, I'm ready to go. You know, I'm not fiddling around. Um, we spent a couple of years ago, I spent time tracking how long it took from the minute the patient checked in to when they got to the optical. And I put a sticky note on every chart to see how long that was. And it's surprising, you know, there's a lot of time wasted. So we worked really hard to make that more efficient because I want the patient having more time in the optical. I don't want them feeling rushed. So once we started using scribes, that really helped because my exam time, you know, came way, way down, but it allows me more time to talk. And we don't schedule, we don't over schedule. Um, we leave a lot of time for me you know, we joke to do what I do best is to chat and talk. And, 
you know, build a relationship with patients and really get to know what they do, who they are, what makes them happy. And that helps me translate into you know, the optical. And I really see a, a big tie in with that about, you know, I have so many patients say no one's ever asked me how many monitors I have and how long I spend on the computer and what sports I play. And, you know, do I play indoor tennis, outdoor tennis, paddle? What's the difference? Well, you haven't met me yet. So, um, you know, so our exams are extremely efficient with the scribes, but I still spend a lot of time in there, both chatting and getting to really deeply dive into that patient. That's wonderful. So you're clearly driven by data. There is a lot of data elements or practice indicators that ECPs can use to measure their business. Do you see a data element or two that is typically not paid attention to by uh, ECPs? I love the the time one. We've already talked about that. But are there any others that you you don't see people paying attention to that they should? I think a lot of people aren't paying attention to any. So it's a little intimidating at first. <laughs> you know, <it> can, <laughs> so most of the time, none. So, um, but I think it can be intimidating again, just, you know, going back to sports vision to take that first step. And, you know, I think we all know we should be monitoring, but we often think we don't have the time. And, you know, I agree to sit down and spend the full day diving into our numbers. That's really intimidating. And most of us just can't, but um, you know, I think there's just so many metrics you can measure, but you have to know what you're looking at and have a plan. And it's not enough to say, I'm just going to watch my, you know, my frame capture rate or my overall capture rate or my average optical per patient sale. It's great to watch numbers and it's great to look at them. But if you don't know what you're analyzing, figuring out what could be going wrong, setting a, a plan in place and then reassessing that it's really hard just to watch the numbers. So, you know, I think looking at two or three metrics and, and just getting a pulse on your practice, whatever they may be. And, you know, it could be as simple as how many patient owned frames are you using? You know, that's a good first one. And I think that's an easy one. How many people are using their own frames? I bet most people don't know. And we assume it's very few. And most of us say, oh, well, none, because my opticians are rock stars and, you know, they're selling frames to everybody. But when you look, it can be surprising and, you know, kind of, Looking is one thing, but it's not enough to go in and say to opticians, stop letting people use their own frames. The opticians go, you don't sit here. You don't deal with that. Right. But, you know, first addressing the issue and then looking at why is it happening and talking to the opticians. Do we are we missing, you know, a lower segment price point that, you know, maybe we don't have that. Do we not have men's frames for large heads? You know, what are we missing and coming up with an approach, fixing that. And then saying, okay, now for the next three months, I'm going to be tracking that. And here's some dialogue. Are we utilizing everybody's insurance? Let's come up with a plan. In three months, let's reassess where we are. Great, we're doing well, but don't let it go away either. Don't go, well, and, and staff are smart. Sometimes they know, oh, Dr. Stewart's on this one. She's going to be riding us about this. But you know what? If we just let her go for a few months, she'll forget about it. So uh, you know, staying on track. And it's a lot. It's, you know, it, it can be overwhelming, but picking two or three of those and just having this constant plan and figuring out how to make changes and keep going, I think that makes it a lot less intimidating. Yeah, that's great stuff. So obviously you've really accomplished a lot at a young age and you've done this as a fearless business leader. You have all this energy and you obviously have this engaged family life or even in business with your husband. So tell us about the unique challenges and opportunities to being a woman in optometry. 
I think, you know, I just think optometry is a wonderful career for women. And, you know, even I graduated in 2007 and now, you know, looking, I love looking at the data of the classes and how much the classes have even changed since I was in school where it's primarily women. And I just think it's such a great field for us because it, it can address the way I went into optometry because I love people and I love helping people, but I also love business. And I think it's a great way to combine the two because I can run them. They're separate businesses. You know, my, my clinical practice is very different from my optical practice and I love both. And I love being able to kind of be in, in have them intertwined and see my patients, but also manage a business. So I think it just gives us such opportunity. And I think just for women in general, you know, we have so many ways that we can practice optometry. You might have a, a passion. I have a friend who has a passion for dry eye and she's got this unbelievable clinic in Oregon where she is really utilizing all of the greatest technologies in dry eye and she's going back to school for nutrition. So she really is focused on, on you know, the ocular health, but also how people can help their bodies. And you know, just to look at that and go, I'm doing sports vision. She's working on nutrition, but we're in the same profession and we find our passions and we can really run with them. You know, I have other friends who love pediatrics and are really focused on myopia management or vision therapy. So I think just we have this ability to take a career and run with whatever fills our passion and, and just makes us excited to go to work every day. And, and that might look different for all of us. That's wonderful. Can you give advice to these young women who are in optometry school today about how to choose the early part of their career? Um, I'd be really interested where you might direct somebody who calls you up and says, you know, I'm a third year. What opportunity should I pursue that gives me the greatest opportunity to grow and, and really impact patients? I think, you know, looking deep down at what makes you happy and, and realizing that you don't have to do everything um, I don't enjoy seeing kids. I'm not a pediatric. I have two young children. I just don't have a passion for pediatrics, but luckily I have an associate who does. And I also, you know, I'm not, I, glaucoma doesn't excite me. I treat glaucoma, but I don't wake up excited to, you know, think about glaucoma. And luckily my associate also loves glaucoma. So I think first is figuring out what makes you happy, what would engage you to go and read and, you know, on your days off and really have an opportunity to do things outside of practice. You know, what makes you want to learn the, after you're seeing patients? And if there's nothing, don't worry. You know, it's sometimes it doesn't come to you until later. You know, sometimes you might think you have a passion for one thing and then you start doing it and go, oh, my gosh, this is not what I thought at all. And um, that's the benefit of optometry is we we can be primary care practitioners and do what we went to school for, but then also fill our cup with maybe a side clinic or, you know, something else that we get to do. And it might not come right away. I mean, I, I practiced for almost 10 years before I started my sports vision practice. And you know, I've been out, gosh, 13 years now. And I'm just realizing I have this, this passion for data and speaking and, and helping other doctors improve their business. So that took me 13 years to realize, to have the confidence to do it. And, you know, I don't think anyone expects a first year doctor to go out and, you know, have this earth shattering revelation about what they're supposed to do. And it might take five years. It might take 10. It might take 20. But you know, keep thinking about the different parts of optometry and what interests you, what other people are doing and, and gravitate towards that. 
So one other thing on that topic, uh, for the women in the audience that are in optometry, what kind of organizations are available that they may not have seen or checked out that you would recommend they look at or join? You know, Women in Optometry has a great podcast series, um, you know, magazine, online presence, and I read every article, I listen to every podcast, and it's just unbelievable to listen to what women have done and, and all of the different things that they've thought about that yeah, I would have never thought about. And, you know, just listening to what brought them into optometry, where what path they took. It's not everybody graduates from optometry school, starts a private practice, and then, you know, is successful. You know, none of us really have probably had a straight path to where we are. So I think that makes it more interesting and it makes it more real. And, you know, it, it's not that everyone figures out what they want to do day one. And just listening to those stories and, and thinking like, oh, wow, you know, she did it maybe I could do that. And, you know, I always say I'm no smarter than anyone. I'm no, you know, more talented than anyone, but I really have this persistence and this quest for learning. And, you know, I actually had a weightlifting session this morning with my coach and he said, you know, you're a great student. And I said, I just like to learn, you know, if you teach me or if you give me the opportunity to learn, I will go with it. And I want to learn everything possible about what I'm doing. And that might be Olympic weightlifting. You know, I want to learn why I'm doing something. So, for me, just having this ability to learn as much as possible and continue to see patients, um, you know, surround yourself with people who are passionate about optometry, surround yourself with people who are passionate about growing their businesses. I have a, a little small group of friends that we text and call each other every single day. Um, we're scattered around the country, but we're in contact every day about what's going on in our practice. Um, you know, this happened today. What frame line are you using? You know, how are you tackling this? So there's other people out there and we're all experiencing the same challenges, the same excitement, the same, you know, different things that we're dealing with in optometry. We're not alone. So they're, they're all out there. Um, you know, I have another friend who just, uh, another woman who just started a cold practice this summer. And it's been great to, to watch that and to watch her success and, I didn't start cold, but I, I, you know, I'm a good sounding board for helping her and, and just helping her be successful and saying, you can do this. You know, I have no doubt that you will be successful and, and, you know, how can I help? Optometrists are so collegial. It's such an important part of the profession. All right. So as we wind down, is there any last bit of wisdom that you want to share anything that you thought about, but I haven't given you a chance to mention? I think, you know, just Going back to what we talked about, you know, we are we're so lucky to do what we do. And I think we get stuck in the trenches of optometry often and we can easily get down with, um, you know, managed care and, and uh, staff issues and, you know, all of the things you know that are coming down the pike and telemedicine and CVS, you know, that's today. And, you know, all these things that we can easily be frustrated with and can can burden us and you know something I say to a lot of the students who come shadow me or I, I speak to our, our undergrad my undergrad I speak to the pre-med students and I say you know anything you read on the internet about optometry take with a grain of salt um, you know the the things that you're reading the you know the bad things you read about it I barely have time during the day to go to the bathroom I am certainly not posting on forums and I'm not posting about the hardships of optometry because I'm so busy. So, you know, there are people out there who are, are realizing their dreams, setting their steps to do it and, you know, working really hard. Surround yourself with those people and in, you just find your goals and just go for it. There's, 
you know, the sky's the limit in optometry and, and we can do anything we really want. So just take that first step and find a group to help you and just go for it. Well, Dr. Jennifer Stewart, thank you so much for your time and sharing these great personal stories. I, I'm grateful. Thank you for having me. Well, my goal with Sandbox Stories is to bring unique perspective. And when it comes to people like you, I'm confident that our audience has benefited from getting to know you. And I really hope we can stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Everybody, until my next Sandbox Story, be great at all you do.